Amen. Well, if that doesn't stir your heart, I mean, my job should really be easy from this point onward in the rest of the service. That was wonderful. And it's good that we're focused on his power with the song that we just sang, because I want to talk to you this afternoon about rethinking your battles with the devil, rethinking your battles with the devil. I want you to go to Exodus chapter 23. We're going to read the last section of the chapter, verses 27 through 33, Exodus chapter 23. We're going to start at verse 27, and we're going to talk about rethinking your battles with the devil. And I give you greetings from Summit. As you could see in the video announcements uh, today, there's really good things happening at your Bible school. God is moving in his power. He is still training and transforming young men and women to go out and turn the kingdom of darkness upside down and advance the kingdom of God. And he's doing wonderful, wonderful things there. So please keep us in your prayers. Uh, February, we, we have a long-running serious joke uh, that February is the longest month uh, at Summit. And it really is. It's the shortest month on the calendar, but it's the dead of winter. It's tough to get outside. It's cold. You're working on tests and quizzes and term papers and everything. And it's tough on the students. So just keep them in your prayers. They're the best people in the world. They gave, uh, gave up two years of their life uh, to come and seek Jesus and learn and be trained so that they can effectively witness and represent him. So I know that your prayers and your love will go long uh, in their hearts. So thank you for that, all of your support. But rethinking your battles with the devil. Exodus 23, starting at verse 27. Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai. He's about to give the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. And God says, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Rethinking your battles with the devil. You know, when you listen to a preacher long enough, you kind of make an accidental collection in your brain of all their illustrations and stories and metaphors and stuff like that. And I've been listening to Pastor Carter preach for about 16 years now. And I have a favorite Pastor Carter story. And I've decided to put myself under the tremendous pressure of trying to tell one of his stories in front of him today. I probably won't do it half as well. But the reason I do it, I've actually retold it several times at our church and in other places that I've had the privilege of speaking at. But it's because it's so impacted my life. I don't want anyone to forget it. If you've heard it before, and if you've not heard it before, you need to hear it because it will change the way that you see your battles with the devil. And I remember it was having to do with when you owned the sheep farm in Canada and you talked about how you kept a cat in the barn because if rodents got into the barn, it would really disturb the sheep and they would lose all sense of tranquility. And so they kept a cat in there. And at one point, this cat had a litter of kittens and it needed to teach them how to hunt. No more milk. They've got to learn to catch their own food. And Pastor Carter said that the, it was kind of funny that the mother cat would take the mouse, not kill it, but just 
beat the daylights out of it. It had no strength left, no energy, couldn't run away. It was too weak uh, to try and preserve its life. And then she would come and drop it in front of the kittens. And this was now the opportunity for these kittens to learn how to hunt and catch their own prey. And so the mouse, out of desperation, knowing that its life is on the line, realizes it only has one defense mechanism left. It's got to deceive the kittens. And so what it would do is it would rear up on its hind legs, put its front paws in the air and squeak at the kittens and try to intimidate them. And they're small. They don't realize yet that they are inherently more powerful than this tiny little mouse that's supposed to be food in front of them. And look, they're looking at something that is supposed to give them nourishment. But because they believe a lie about it, it causes fear. And in so many ways, that's exactly what our relationship with the devil is like when it comes to the way he fights against us. You and I are not waging war against a real threat in a way. We are waging war against an already defeated foe. And you have to let that be your first principle in understanding who the devil is and how you're supposed to fight him. There are passages in the Bible that make it very clear that the devil is a threat. He is like a roaring lion walking around seeking whom he may devour. But even those warning passages never abandon the position of strength that you and I are meant to take. Because even in the next line of that verse, it says, resist him steadfast in the faith. And so when we look at who he is and the nature of our battle with him, our first level of understanding has to be that he's already defeated, not by our hand, but by the hand of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. He defeated him at the cross 2,000 years ago. And what that means for us now is that all the battles that we have with the devil are just practice. He is practice. That's all he is. He is just practice. And the only real weapon that he has left against you and I is deception. It is to get us to believe a lie about ourselves and about who he is. And what you have here in Exodus 23 is a passage that reflects that idea. Moses is coming down off Mount Sinai. He's got the law of God in his hand. He has been in the presence of the Almighty. And he's about to deliver the word of God to the people. And the whole conversation between him and God is ending with a collection of promises. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. But then he makes this very interesting statement in verse 29. Look there with me again, please. He talks about driving out all the enemy nations in the promised land. He says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. And that's really important because what it tells us is that Israel needed to grow into the promise of God. He was giving them the entire land, but they weren't big enough to take care of the land themselves yet. And so God says, the way I'm going to work around this is I'm actually going to let some of your enemies survive for a little while. I'm not going to conquer them all in a year. I'm going to have you drive them out stage by stage. There's going to be phases to how you collect and uh, appropriate the promises that I've given you in the land of Canaan. And he says that the two reasons why he's going to leave some enemies behind is because if they all get driven out, the land will become desolate. Even today, if you go to the Middle East, there are, there are vineyards there that are thousands of years old. You can find things like that in parts of Europe. And all of these well-cultivated farms and these beautiful vineyards that were there, if God had driven all the Canaanites out right away, Israel wouldn't have been big enough to take care of all the land. 
And so they would have lost productivity. Some of the land actually would have not as been, it would have been not as fruitful as it could have been. And the second reason was so that the beasts of the field, predators, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, would not multiply against you. Because when you have farmers who are not only keeping land, but also keeping cattle, and they're keeping flocks and herds, and they're, they're keeping camels, they're going to keep the predator populations under control because they don't want their animals dying. And so God is actually going to let the enemy survive to serve his people. The enemy thinks they're going to be taking care of their own land, taking care of their own animals, doing everything. that Israel's not getting us out. We've still got a foothold here. This is still our land. This is still our property. We're not letting them drive us out. And God says, I'm only letting you stay so you can keep everything in good condition for them. And it's a very similar situation to what you and I go through as Christians. When you look at God leaving the Canaanites in the land, at first it sounds contradictory because look at verse 32 again. He gives them a warning. He says, you shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So when you look at this idea that, okay, they're a threat, they're a danger, but you're going to let them stay. Lord, aren't you setting your people up for failure? Aren't you setting them up for temptation? Aren't you setting them up for, for a dangerous situation? But no, in actuality, the, the threat was real. The danger was real. But God was going to use it for his people's benefit. Because of their small size and because of their need to grow, he was actually going to preserve his promise to them through the presence of the enemy. And there's a couple ways that you and I can relate to this. I want to give you three ways. First of all, we have a promised land. Just like Israel had Canaan, we have Christ. Jesus and all of the promises of God in him, which are yes and amen to the people of God, that's what we're striving for. We want to enter into the fullness of everything Jesus died to give us at the cross. But another way that it relates is that we also have enemies. We have spiritual enemies, not physical flesh and blood enemies, but spiritual demonic forces that don't want you to be a strong Christian. The devil doesn't want you to come into the promises of God. He doesn't want you to walk in the promise of peace that surpasses all understanding. He does not want you to be a, more than a conqueror through him that loved you. He does not want you to have boldness like a lion, to open your mouth in the marketplace and declare the gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want you to be a thriving Christian. But just like Israel, we're promised victory over those enemies. But like Israel, we are also sometimes benefited by the presence of enemies in our lives. And this raises the question of, okay, if those are the three parallels, if those are three connecting points between us and this passage, how do we start applying it? What does this mean for us? How does this give direction to our lives? Well, the first thing we have to note is that this passage cannot, cannot apply to you if you're in rebellion against God. It cannot apply to you if you're in rebellion against the Lord. So Israel is being taken into the land and there are going to be enemies that are left there, but they're not treating those enemies as neighbors that they want to make peace with. They are an active threat that they are working toward driving out of the land. And so if you relate that to our battles with the enemy, our struggles against Satan and his temptations and the discouragements and everything that he throws at us, and our, uh, throws at us throughout our lives, those are not things that we say, well, I'm going to live at peace with God and at peace with my sin. No, what we're talking about today cannot help you. You cannot live in the embrace of iniquity and call yourself a member of the kingdom of God at the same time. There has to be a dividing line. 
You cannot agree with light and with darkness simultaneously. It doesn't work that way. God said, this is where the warning of verses 32 and 33 comes in. I'm leaving the enemies there, but not so you can make a covenant with them. Not so you can make a peace treaty with them. They are there to teach you something. They are there until you grow into the promise that I have for you. But the point is so that you can drive them out, not so you can make peace with them as though they were neighbors. It cannot apply to us if we're living in rebellion against God. And I've heard this kind of rationalizing from people where they'll say, well, I I still struggle with that sin and and God hasn't delivered me from it yet, so I'm just not going to worry about it. No, that's a religious cloak for rebellion. That's what that is. That that, that might sound a little spiritual, but it's not. It's actually darkness. The whole point is that, okay, I've got enemies present in my life and and I'm struggling against them. I want them out. I don't know how to drive them out yet, but I'm not going to be at peace with them. I'm not okay with them being there. That's an appropriate attitude. That is a Christian mentality to have toward ongoing enemy presence in your life. This passage cannot apply to you if you're living in rebellion against God. The second thing that it shows us is it reminds us that all things really do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In Romans 8, 28, it says all things. There's no fine print. That includes your ongoing struggles with discouragement. That includes the ongoing fears that you're still figuring out how to grapple with, the identity issues that you're still trying to sort out. Listen, if you belong to Jesus, all things, including all the dysfunctional aspects of your heart and of your thinking, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is going to take everything threatening your spiritual well-being and he's going to use it to transform you into the man or woman that he's called you to be. Everything serves you when you're a Christian. Like Israel, we can know there's a promised land in front of us. There are things that we're supposed to be inheriting. There are ways that my life is supposed to be looking, but I still feel so far off. I look and I see enemy presence. I see the presence of this doubt. I see the presence of this fear or of this unbelief or of this insecurity. But just as God spoke to Israel in Exodus 23, he's saying to us today, look, those things are there to serve you. If you refuse to make peace with them, they will not destroy you. You keep your heart in line with mine, and there will come a point where you outgrow that struggle. And it is driven out of your heart, driven out of your life, driven out of your thinking forever. All things work together for the good of those who love God. And just like the Israelites, you and I can outgrow our fears. You will outgrow your insecurities. You will outgrow your temptations. You will outgrow the things that Satan uses on a daily basis to threaten you with. But third of all, and this is probably the most important, is that it shows us that enemy presence is left behind to teach us how to fight. It's left there to teach us how to fight. There's another passage in the book of Judges that deals with this very same idea. Listen to Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, these are the nations, the same group of people in Exodus 23, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Your battles, 
your ongoing struggles against Satan, your ongoing struggles with temptation and with fear and with doubt, provided again, you're not a person who's living at peace with those things. You hate your sin. You don't always get it right, but you love God and you want to walk with him. If that's your case, and if that's where you are, all of those battles are just practice. God will turn those things into a training ground for something greater than you can imagine. Because look, God has always been about training his people for war. He turns the devil into your punching dummy, if I could put it that way. That's all that he is. He's like that beaten up mouse that the, the mother cat put in front of the kittens. He's lying to you like, I'm big and scary. I'm going to tear down your faith. I'm going I'm to ruin your life with these temptations that I'm throwing at you. He is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He is an already defeated foe. And he is put in front of you by God to teach you how to fight. To teach you how to make war. He is simply an instrument of instruction in the hand of God. David talked about this in Psalm 18 when he said that God teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight so that a bow of steel can be broken by my arms. God teaches us to fight. And I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read a few verses from there just to further drive this point home. It is absolutely critical that the church be a warrior bride for Jesus. We are designed to fight. And the, oftentimes the things that we look at in our lives, the struggles and the difficulties, the arrows of the enemy that come against us, we look and we think, oh, this shows how defeated I am. I'm such a failure because I still have this going on. No, you're in training. You are in training. Don't give the enemy that much credit. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, taking up the full armor of God. You are in training to fight devils. You're fighting the devil because it is your job to go out and fight devils on behalf of people who cannot fight for themselves. You're in training. You are in training. Listen, the person who, because of defiance of God's truth, dabbles in things that they ought not to and opens themselves up to battles that the Lord really didn't intend for them to fight. God can turn that around provided there's repentance and there's covenant loyalty toward the Lord. But for the believer who's just, you're getting struck by things you really didn't ask for, you're in training. You're in boot camp, and God is going to grow you into a soldier that's able to cast off your lust. He's going to grow you into a soldier that's able to cast off fear, that's able to cast off rejection and insecurity, because there's other people out there who can't throw those things off. 
And you're going to go and in the name of Jesus, break chains and open prison doors. That's your job. That's your calling. And so the things that you wrestle with today, they are there just like the Canaanites left behind in the land of Canaan. They are there to you, for you to learn how to fight. And there are four spiritual warfare tactics in Ephesians 6 that I want to give you. And this is where we're going to land for today. The first tactic is this. You've got to put on the new man. You've got to put on the new man. When Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God, putting on. That phrase is something he uses very frequently in his letters, and he also uses it twice in the book of Ephesians. And it always has to do with embracing the new life that Jesus gave you when you got saved and rejecting the life of sin that you were rescued out of. Putting on the whole armor of God is not where you run through a list. I put on the helmet of salvation in Jesus' name. I take up the, and look, if you do that, hey, more power to you. It's all, it's all good. You know, nothing wrong with that. But don't miss the core idea behind it. Putting on the armor of God is really wrapped up in what kind of life are you committed to living? Because if you are okay with dabbling in sin, well, you know, I mean, it's not a big deal. It's just little lies to get out of trouble. And, you know, I mean, it's okay if I watch movies with, with a bit of nudity. I'm not affected by it anyway. Liar. You're affected. Okay? You're affected. It's one thing. It's one thing to say, no, Lord, I'm committed to walking with you. I'm, gonna, I'm not always going to get it right, but God, I'm going to pursue after you. I embrace the new life that you gave me, created in righteousness after the Son of God. That's putting on the armor. When you and I choose to dabble and compromise, well, that's like having nothing on. Don't go into a battle with, with no armor whatsoever. You're unguarded. You're unprotected. The first tactic of spiritual warfare is to put on the new man. You reject your old sinful way of living and you embrace the new life that Jesus gave you at salvation. It doesn't mean you always get it right. It doesn't mean that you live perfectly. I, I am of the opinion that moral perfection where you and I don't do anything wrong anymore, that is a level of glorification. We're not going to fully experience until we get to the other side. Until we finish the journey. As long as we're in this body, we're going to have moments where we succumb to temptation. But that doesn't mean we live at peace with temptation. That doesn't mean we don't pursue holiness. I want to get as close as I can on this side of eternity. The second tactic in spiritual warfare, you have put on the new man. The second is trust in God's character. Trust in God's character. In verse 16, Paul sets a specific element of the armor of God apart from everything else. He says, above all, take the shield of faith. And it's most likely Paul is modeling all of these things after Roman centurions. When they would go into battle, their shields, a big rectangular shields, often made of leather, and they would dip them in water. They would saturate them with water before going onto the battlefield. Because a common tactic of the enemy armies was to shoot flaming arrows at the Roman soldiers. And so you put that soaked shield up, those arrows are going to be extinguished when they come in. And Paul draws on that image. He says, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Well, faith in what? Faith in God. The more convinced you are that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is stronger than what opposes you, the more consistently you're going to be able to run this race that you're in called life. It has nothing to do with your own spirituality. Who do you say God is? Because our strength doesn't come from our own self-confidence. It comes from our confidence in him and in his goodness. 
When we trust in God's trustworthiness, that's what destroys the lies of the enemy. That's what destroys Satan's lies. The third tactic that we want to have down pat as a science is quote scripture. Quote scripture. Look at verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I don't think it's an accident that Paul couples these two things together, where you take the word of God and a knowledge of salvation, putting them together, and you start weaponizing God's word against the lies and the doubts and the fears of the enemy. Paul takes the scripture and he, he depicts it as a weapon of attack and aggression. The, your faith is your defense. Your trust in God is what protects you, but the word is meant to make you dangerous. Your knowledge of the word of God is what makes you a threat to the powers of darkness. Folks, you gotta read your Bible. You need to read your Bible. You need to memorize scripture. You don't have to have a whole book memorized. This is not about you measure your spirituality according to how many verses you can quote. No, in, in your way, in your devotional life with the Lord, soak in the word of God. Every now and then, just let a verse pop out. Say, Holy Spirit, help me, help me to remember something today. Put me in some situation where I'm going to need to draw on what I read this morning. You will learn real quick that way. You will memorize so much of the word of God. And it's not about being superstitious and, and giving some incantation. This is a faith-filled declaration. God, your word is powerful. Your word undoes the lies and the bondages of the enemy. And when you have that understanding and you start quoting scripture with that knowledge and in that way, you become a danger to the lies and the powers of the enemy. The fourth tactic. So again, you have put on the new man. Trust in God's character. Quote scripture, the fourth tactic is this, pray, pray. You and I have got to pray. And I think of all the things that Paul tells us to do in this passage, I, I, I would think that prayer is probably the most opposed art that you and I are called to learn. I think it's what the devil tries to pull us from more than anything else. Because you know, I, I work at a school, I'm attending seminary, I'm around intellectual people very, very often. And you know, the devil doesn't mind us getting into the word if he can use it to make us argumentative. He really doesn't. But prayer, he's got no time for that. It's always dangerous. When the people of God rise in faith and start pleading with heaven to undo strongholds and, and turn back darkness and turn back evil, that's really dangerous. Sometimes we get a little too heady with the way that we look at the word and the way that we use the scripture. And very often we've, we've not undergone a lot of persecution from the world in this country by comparison to other nations, but the church has, has sure persecuted herself. If Christians constantly arguing and discerning other Christians and other ministries, and we divide ourselves with our knowledge and it's really sad and it's really pathetic. So when you, you have to have all of these things. Not one of these tactics is more important than another. You must embrace the new life that Jesus gave you and reject the old sinful life you were rescued from. You must trust God and believe above all else that he is good and that he's trustworthy and it never fails. You've got to know the word. You've got to be able to quote scripture, talk to the devil, preach sermons to him, you know, in the right moments. But you've also got to pray. You've got to pray. You've got to have a life of intercession. And look at what he says in verse 18. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That's all one description of what a prayer life should look like. 
He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with perseverance and supplication for the saints. In other words, prayer is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's done at all times, and it's not just about you. It's okay to pray for your own needs. It's okay to pour out your heart before the Lord. The psalmist exhorts us to do that, but pray for your neighbor. Pray for your brother. Pray for your sister. Pray for somebody else. Fight for their needs as though they were your own. That's when you really start doing damage to the kingdom of darkness. Put on the new man. Trust in God's character. Quote scripture and pray, pray, pray. Amen? As long as we're in this life, as long as we're in this body, we're going to see pockets of enemy presence in our lives. We're going to see areas where it just seems the devil still knows how to get us. He, just, he knows how to tempt us. He knows how to put us in fear. He knows how to incite doubt. He knows how to get us feeling insecure. He knows how to get us discouraged. But listen, in those moments, you rise up and you say, you know what? You're practice. That's all you are because I'm going to outgrow you someday. I'm going to outgrow all of your lies. I might not quite know what to do right now, but I will outgrow you. And I'm going to drive you out of my thinking. I am not going to be stuck under this forever because I serve a God. I might be in the ring with a, with a world champ, but I've got a coach at ringside who never fails, never, ever fails. And he never leaves, ever leaves. And maybe you're here today and you've just been feeling a bit pummeled lately. You've really felt the presence of the enemy. Just one fiery arrow after another. Look, it's time to start telling him who your God is and who you are in him. Don't let that beat up mouse lie to you. Don't let him convince you that he's more dangerous than Jesus has made him. Because look, when you have the right perspective on God, you're going to have a right perspective on the devil. Like You are not a threat. You're practice. You have no more power over me than I give you. That's really what it comes down to. So would you stand with me today? And I just want to give an altar call. Anyone who's just feeling harassed, anyone who's feeling tormented by the enemy, you just can, you feel a bit overwhelmed and you, it's like he's just been hammering on you and you want to walk with God. You want to live for God. Your heart is to, is to serve Jesus and make him known. Look, I want, to, I want to pray for you to be encouraged. I want to pray for you to go out that door renewed in your thinking, renewed in your mind, and knowing that I am not going to be stuck under him. And I'm going to learn how to fight for other people. I'm going to be able to go out and open people's prison doors of, of their own fears and their own doubts and their own insecurities because God's going to open mine. God's going to teach my hands to war and my fingers to fight. If that's the cry of your heart, then I want to invite you to join those that are already coming. Make your way down here to the front. We're going to sing for a few moments and then let's pray and believe God for strength. Believe God for all the power that he promised to give us. He leaves enemies behind to train us and to teach us and equip us. Any enemy that's in your life, it is not there for you to be overcome. He is not there for you to be destroyed. He's there for you to practice. You are being taught and trained to go out and set people free who don't know how to do it for themselves. Let's praise God for a few moments. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that this is a group of people at the front right now, Lord, your sons and daughters who refuse to make peace with the enemy. God, they want to see every enemy presence driven out. God, and I thank you that you will give them what their heart desires. And God, I thank you that every battle between here and freedom, God, it's practice. It's training. 
Lord, I thank you that you will not allow the enemy to overcome your people. You cause us to overcome. Lord, we will not make peace with things that are out of line with your heart and with your values, oh God. Lord, you are the only one with the authority to define what's right and what's wrong. And God, when we come in contact with those moments where we know that our, our hearts are being drawn, our hearts are being drawn away from what you say is right, we're being tempted to go in another direction. God, we're being tempted to believe something about you that's not true. God, we're being tempted to go into fear and doubt, oh God, and to give in to discouragement. Lord, I thank you that you are going to use those things to train and strengthen and grow us, oh God, because you're committed, just as you were committed to bringing Israel, you were committed to growing them into inheriting all of the land. You are the same toward us, oh God. You are committed to causing us to inherit all of your holiness, all of your righteousness, all of your power, oh God. You are gonna grow us into the fullness of Christ. And Lord, I thank you that you will not allow the battles, Lord. You will not allow the opposition of the enemy to thwart that, Lord God, because you're stronger than him. You have already defeated him, Lord God. I thank you that we fight against a defeated foe. Lord, may we no longer look at our battles as a sign of defeat. We are not in battles because we're defeated. We are in battles because we're in training. And we are going to be made into a great army. You're the God who looks at dead, dry bones and sees an army and raises them into an army. So God, I thank you for the empowerment that's going to come upon my brothers and sisters today. Lord, let them walk out of these doors looking at their battles in a different perspective, oh God. No longer looking at themselves as weak. No longer looking at themselves as failures, but God, looking to you as the victor and looking at their tempter as a defeated enemy who is doomed to destruction. God, I thank you that they are destined for triumph. They are destined for victory. And though they might stumble on the journey to get there, you're going to pick them back up every time. We are not interested in living at peace with what you died to save us from. We are not interested in living at peace with this world, oh Lord God. We are only interested, we are passionate, oh God, about pursuing you and being everything that you've called us to be. So Lord, we thank you, oh God, that you're going to keep us. We thank you that you're going to empower us, God, and you're going to bring us into the fullness, the fullness of what Jesus Christ died to give us. Father, thank you, and I pray your blessing and your joy on your people today. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. Let's give God some praise. Thank you, Lord.